Thank you, George. <clears throat> My wife just told me I don't need to preach anymore. <laughs> um, George has no idea I'm going to do this, but um, you may not realize that George is actually in, in some way a professional meditator. Um, he has co-authored a book of community meditations that we have a copy of in the library, and so um, if you'd like to check that out, you can hear more like what we just heard. Thank you so much, George. We are almost done with our series on Colossians. We have today, and then we have next week, we're going to finish the book. We are in chapter 4, verse 2, and we're only going to be doing five verses today, and then we have 11 next week. And the, the, ones that, the verses that we're doing right now are the really final instructions that Paul has for the church in Colossae. The next 11 verses are things that are addressed to individuals. They're his closing comments that he wants to make and um, instructions he wants to give to individuals. But this is the last thing that he says to, his peop- to the whole church. And it's going to draw together the, everything that he's been telling them and give them some final instructions on how to carry that out. And so we're going to dig into those. And so I'll encourage you to have your Bible, if you brought it with you, open to Colossians chapter 4. And I'll also invite you to stand for the second to last time, I promise, in the service, uh, for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains, so that I may make make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So before we dig into this passage, I want to try and encapsulate what Paul has been saying to the Colossians for the past three chapters. And we've been talking about Paul's starting point is to address a community that is being tempted by other powers. They're being tempted to worship other gods in addition to Jesus. They're also being tempted to add the law of Moses onto Jesus as if following the law of Moses would get them additional credentials or additional access to the presence of God. Basically, they're being told that they need more than Jesus, and they should find that either in the gods that the Roman community has to offer or the law of Moses. So what Paul has been doing is been arguing that they can find everything they need in Jesus. And that's the first point that he makes, is that Jesus is all you need, but in order for him, in order for you to find fulfillment in Jesus, you do actually need to be completely committed to Jesus, because mixing Jesus with other things does not yield the results. Jesus doesn't work mixing with others. The only way what Jesus has to offer works is when you commit totally to him. And that is because Jesus operates in a different way than every, uh, everything else you could be invited to follow. Because we've talked about how all the power structures of this world and all the sources of hope other than Jesus that we find in this world are ultimately based in our fear of death, and they're based in this need to compete and to claim for ourselves and to cloy and to hold and to be selfish. And Jesus 
works in the completely opposite direction. He doesn't mix well with these other ways of living. And so then Paul spends the next section of the letter talking about this resurrection way of life, what it means to live in a world where death has been defeated. Because if we live in a world where we have the assurance of eternal life, then it changes the math on everything we do. It changes the math on every decision that we make. And all of a sudden, the temptations to sin, to cut corners, to be harsh to other people, to be selfish, to put ourselves ahead of everything else, that that reasoning makes less sense. When we find out that our life this side of glory, it will be 0% of our eternal existence, then the things we accomplish in this life, the things that we acquire in this life, they, they become less important, or they should. And so we're able to live in a very different way. And that's what Paul has been unpacking for the last chapter or so, is what it looks like to live free of this, the, the, the significance of death and the idea that all we have is this life. So ultimately, to summarize where we've been coming from, Paul is calling the Colossians to stay loyal to Jesus and the resurrection way of life. Stay loyal to Jesus as the source of your hope, and also live in a way that fits with that hope. Live like, live like you've received what Jesus is offering. And in these final instructions, it's into that context that he's speaking. He's putting the exclamation point on that argument or that case. And he begins in this final section by saying this, devote yourselves to prayer and stay alert in it. Now, I will confess, I struggle with being devoted to prayer. I struggle with constant uh, prayer uh, habits. If you look in my office, I have a whole side uh, bookshelf filled full of prayer books and different things that I've tried to build up a, a strategy or a habit of prayer. And it's something that I can't just turn on. I have to keep working at it, and it comes and goes, and, and I, I, I struggle with it. And I think part of it is because sometimes I lose sight of the motivation for prayer. Because too often our, our narrow focus of prayer, of the purpose of prayer, is to ask for things. For ourselves or for others. And we think that's what prayer is, is that we focus on the petition side of it. Which is not necessarily selfish, right? We, we will often focus on asking things for other people. But we focus on prayer as asking for things... And then your motive for praying is, well, is there anything I need to ask for? And if I don't have something to ask for, then I'm not really that motivated to pray. I may not remember to pray, or I mean, what what am I doing if I'm not, if I don't have that particular need? And so I struggle to connect prayer with a constant purpose sometimes. Paul here is giving us a constant purpose for prayer. If you were to read it in the Greek and you were to know the Greek, uh, like the people whose books I read do, um, to write this sermon, um, you would make a connection with what Paul is saying. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it. That language appears in another part of the New Testament, in a particular story in the New Testament. Jesus uses the same words, speaking to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, stay awake and pray that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That word for stay awake is the word for stay alert that uh, Paul is using. And the context is very similar. 
Notice that what's happening to the disciples, why, why do they fall asleep? It's because they don't know what's coming. Because Jesus isn't tell, didn't tell them, hey, this is the situation, pray about it. He just tells them, pray, because situations are coming. They don't know when. Turns out it's going to be a lot sooner than expected. I, I would give them the credit of thinking if they knew that the soldiers were at the gate of the, of the garden, they would have stayed awake praying. But what Jesus is saying is stay alert and pray in anticipation of the things that are going on, not just in the situation that you're in. And specifically, he's telling them to pray against temptation. And the temptation is to what? The temptation is to fall away. When the faith gets difficult, to fall away. Because we have the mistaken notion that what holds us in our faith is our certainty in the facts. I believe in Jesus because I have been convinced that he's alive, because I'm convinced that the Bible is true because of these facts. But it is very possible to believe those facts and not be loyal to Jesus. What keeps us with Jesus is our commitment to his cause. And the challenge that the disciples were about to face was the fact that their commitment to the cause was going to be tested with swords and spears. We think that our faith is grounded in facts that we know, and since those facts aren't going to change, I don't need to worry. But the reality is, faith is a virtue because it requires us to stay committed to what we believe, even when it's hard. And this context makes sense for what Paul, has been say- what Paul is saying, because he earlier told the Colossians, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based in human tradition, based in the elements of the world rather than Christ. He's telling them to be on their guard for temptations, to take easier paths, to take more immediately satisfying paths. It would be a lot easier to just worship the Greek gods too, because then that makes it, I'll fit in better. You know, I'll be able to sit with more people at the lunch table. I won't stand out as much among my friends. That would be easier. So he's telling them to pray constantly against temptation. And not just the temptation that I'm currently facing, but the temptation I will face. One of the problems that I run into is that I don't, when, I'll run into a moment when I really need prayer, and I haven't been praying in the lead up to that, and so I'm very out of shape. Praying when you're out of shape is as hard as running when you're out of shape. Running has been my main way of losing weight and, and um, keeping it off. And there have been phases due to an injury or something else where I haven't been able to. And the first time I go back and try to run what I used to run, that 5K is really, really hard, right? It takes a while to build that back up, even after only a few weeks. And I think sometimes the struggle that we run into is that we hit a problem and we need to pray about it, and it's really hard to pray. And we might even give up because it's hard to pray. The reason it's hard to pray is because you're not in shape. It doesn't mean God's not hearing you. God hears you regardless of the shape that you're in, but it can be harder for us to pray because we haven't been devoted to it. So what I would encourage you to do is to keep praying. Doesn't feel like it's working, doesn't feel good, haven't found a rhythm, keep praying. Devote yourselves to prayer against temptation. But Paul does give us a little bit more detail than just pray. Because that can be hard when people, when you have a problem and somebody says, well, just pray. Like, okay, what do I, how, what do I do? What do I say? Are there magic words? Are there, what, do I do a certain number of Hail Marys? Like, what am I doing? How do I do this? Paul is more specific than that because he says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it, in prayer, 
with thanksgiving. Paul has been really emphasizing thanksgiving in this book, especially in chapter 3. If you remember, we had a passage where he talked about it three times in three verses. He says, Let the peace of Christ, to which you were all called in one body, rule in your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a lot of reasons why gratitude is important, but I think the main reason is because it is accurate. What I mean is that it is true, it is a fact of our faith that God is generous with us, that God provides for us, that he cares for us, that ultimately in the eternal timeline, we are given everything we need, right? So our proper orientation, the accurate way to view God is with gratitude. If we're not grateful, we are in factual error. We're missing something. We're not focusing on something. We've narrowed in on something, right? And it happens to all of us. But gratitude grounds us in truth. And it reminds us of the bigger picture. Because when we are grateful for everything that God has given us, when we are grateful for the whole breadth of blessings and the breadth of God's plan and what he's doing in the world, that is what gives us the the perspective that enables us to endure the individual challenges. Because you will face mountains in life, problems that are absolute mountains in comparison to you. They are not mountains in comparison to God, and they are not mountains in comparison to the power that God has to care for you and to get you through this life and to bless you in the next. And so when we focus on how I compare the mountain, it's a problem. It's insurmountable, and it's something that causes me to stumble. When I am grateful and I focus on the scale of what God does, all of a sudden that mountain is dwarfed. It's, I still got to climb it. But the perspective is different. So what he wants us to do is to pray constantly against temptation by focusing on thanksgiving. Very easy to say. Very difficult to practice. It's something that you have to do constantly. But that is his first instruction in his final, his final set of instructions to the Colossians. The next thing he says is, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So in this case, the the broad summary is he tells them to pray for evangelism, pray for missionaries, pray for the work of the gospel to continue. But I want to look a little bit closer at how he phrases this because he doesn't say pray for missionaries. He doesn't say pray for evangelism. He says specifically pray that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. And I think it's important what he's saying there because there, are, there have been a lot of different ways that people have spread the gospel throughout history. Some of them have the right ways and some of them have been very wrong. And Paul is, has a specific focus in mind. He's describing this work in a particular way. He talks about the mystery of Christ. And if you were here, we, we, he's talked about this earlier in the book, and we, we dug into what that word means, what that phrase means, the mystery of Christ. In the Old Testament, it refers to God's plan that he hasn't revealed yet of how he's going to conquer all the nations. It comes from Daniel chapter 2. It's the mystery of God is how is he going to conquer the nations? 
And what Paul says is the, the revelation of that mystery, he says in Colossians, God wanted, wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now he is talking to Gentile citizens of the Roman Empire who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, the King of Israel. He talks about this in Ephesians as well. The fact that the mystery is being revealed that God is conquering the nations because the citizens of the nations are giving their allegiance to Jesus in the church. Not through conquest, not through fight, but through the sacrifice of Jesus. So the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God, is the fact that he is able to reconcile us to himself and to each other. No matter what the boundaries are that we put up, no matter what the obstacles we've created, he reconciles us to himself and to each other. This is why in the very next verse, Paul emphasizes, we proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice he's hitting that everyone. He puts that word in there more times than he needs to. He's emphasized we are preaching to everyone. And in fact, that is the reason he's in jail. Paul is in jail because he preached the gospel to Gentiles. He could have said whatever he wanted to the Jews about the God of Israel. But when you start preaching about the one God to the Gentiles, you're breaking the law. So he was in jail because of, precisely because of the mystery. And what that means is that Paul is talking about preaching the gospel of reconciling people to God and to each other. He's talking about spreading the good news of the resurrection way of life. And that is not the same as just every mode of evangelism. I'll give you a, a, a kind of an extreme example. When the Spanish colonized the Americas, they sent over priests, and the Spanish priests were responsible to the king of Spain. And so when they evangelized, they built missions, and they required the natives to move to the missions to adopt Spanish names, to speak Spanish, and uh, adopt Spanish clothing, and, and did a lot to destroy the culture of the native inhabitants. Because their job as servants of the king of Spain was to create loyal Spanish subjects, or at least obedient ones. The French Catholics also spent, sent missionaries over. Those missionaries did not answer to the king of Spain. They just worked for the church. And when they came over, they lived in the native villages. They learned the native languages. They spoke the gospel to them in the native languages. And essentially, they actually, in, in Canada, they have Christmas hymns that use the native name for God. Like, they, like the, the language from the native, the word from the native language for God. Is a completely different approach to spreading the gospel. And you can see how one of those approaches ultimately led to huge anti-Catholic wars in Mexico. Uh, they made Catholicism illegal at one point and persecuted the Catholic Church because it was so intertwined with the establishment and with oppression and destroying culture. You can see the difference in how one, one form of evangelism is not the spreading the, sharing the mystery of Christ. Right? It's, it's about something else. So what we need to be praying for is not just that people we end up with more people ticking the Christian box in the census than we did before. The gospel is not just supposed to switch how people identify themselves. It's also supposed to change culture. It's supposed to change people. It's supposed to bring reconciliation. It's supposed to bring peace. And it has done that. And it usually does that. 
But what Paul is preaching is not just that we pray for changes in census results, but that we see transformed people and transformed communities and transformed cultures because of the influence of the gospel and people living this resurrection way of life. That's what he wants us to be praying for. And then Paul says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Now this is, seems like really broad advice. Act wisely toward outsiders. Well, shouldn't we just be wise? Just act wisely all the time. What does he mean here? Well, the word wise has come up in a particular context throughout this book, and it's always been paired, it's usually paired with the word mystery, which we just saw. So in Colossians, he says, I have become a servant of the gospel to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then he says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches and complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And finally, here he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. What's happening there because of that combination of words is he's linking the two instructions together. He's building on what he just said, what he wanted them to pray about himself. He wants to happen in them. Because in this book, when he uses the words, wisely and mystery together. He's quoting from the Old Testament in Daniel, which uses wisely and mystery together. Wisdom is how you know how to explain the mystery of God. When Daniel explains the mystery of God to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he, when he explains his dream, it's because God gives him wisdom. Right? A divine mystery can only really be explained in the right way. And that's what he means by wisdom. And so when he says, pray for me that I may make the mystery known, then I want you to act wisely. He's, he's carrying on the same thought about making the mystery known. Because there's another way that you can make sense of, verse, of the, the, verse, the last verse about Paul. You could also read it as saying, I am in chains for the mystery of Christ so that I may make it known as I should. That Paul is in prison so that he can reveal the mystery of God properly. There is a right way and a wrong way to reveal the mystery of God. For Paul, if he had, when they came to arrest him, if he had said, you know what, fine, I won't preach to the Gentiles. I'll just preach to the Jews. I'm sure they'll hear it through the rumor mill, and, but I won't preach to them so you don't have to put me in jail. Would that have been an accurate representation of the mystery of God? Would that have been revealing the message of God? But the fact that he is in prison, he is willing to go to prison, not only for preaching the gospel, but also because he's personally testifying that Jesus appeared to him and told him about this. The fact that he is willing to go to and stay in prison shows his dedication and the seriousness with which he takes this idea that Gentiles can be brought into the church. That is a way of demonstrating the gospel, the mystery, to the nations. So when Paul says that you should act wisely with other people, 
He's saying you need to behave in ways that reflect the gospel. Behave in ways that are consistent with the resurrection way of life. Because it is really easy for Christians to say the right words, to send the right messages with their mouths, and send the wrong messages with their actions. And people will believe your actions more than your words. They will believe your actions more than your words. Same thing, same thing with kids. It's hard. My kids pay way too much attention to my behavior. They pick up on things. But what he's saying is that they, if they're going to be a part of the spreading of the gospel, which he said they are in the first chapter, then their behavior needs to be consistent with that. Their behavior needs to be consistent with the idea that they serve a king who is reconciling all people to himself. This is one of the reasons why he tells them that in, in their gatherings, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, but all are Christ. He's saying if, if people come into church and you guys are divided by the same social divisions that divide everybody else, then they won't believe that you have all been reconciled to the same God. If they find you not treating each other as brothers and sisters out in the world, if you're a, a Jewish Christian and you're still avoiding your Gentile the fellow Christians out there in the world so that your Jewish family won't give you grief, you are not representing the gospel of Jesus. The same questions come back to us. How are we acting? Are we behaving in ways that reflect the resurrection way of life? Or are we just as caught up in the same kinds of divisions? Are we just as caught up in the same kinds of rat races? Are we just as caught up in making the most money or, or getting the, the, best, um, you know, the best awards and, and, and putting ourselves first before everybody else? Can they tell that you live a different kind of life by the way you're living your life? Then he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. If your question is, how do I talk to somebody? His answer is, as a Christian, his answer is, let your speech always be gracious. That means gracious, uh, graceful, um, pleasant to listen to. Because he also says, seasoned with salt. That's supposed to make it appealing. Salt is a flavoring right, that makes it appealing. Saying, speak in ways that are appealing to people. Ways that make peace. Because Paul is still talking about the same challenge of revealing the mystery of God. Because when he says, let your speech, the word speech is the word word. It's logos, which is the same word that he used earlier when he said, opening a door for us to the word. So he's still talking about the same thing, that these people in Colossae are called to the same mission that Paul is called to as a missionary in wherever, whichever jail he's in. And they're supposed to speak in ways that make the gospel appealing to people. Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. That salt, that phrase of salt is meant to be, for the kids in the, in the sanctuary, being salt, uh, being salt is the opposite of being salty. Right? Sorry, I just what? sorry I said. Being salty is a word for being grouchy, you know. It's the difference, the opposite of being salt. 
And the, what he's saying is that you can't actually communicate the gospel accurately in ways that alienate people. And this is something that we do a lot in our day and age. I have, I have really tried to work as a discipline in myself this, this principle. And I want you to think about this in the way you talk to others, and especially in what you do online. When you express something, is it actually expressed in a way that could genuinely convince someone who disagrees with you? Because what I've noticed is the majority of the time when we argue online, the way we phrase things is, would never actually win over someone who disagrees with us. It's actually just meant to make them look stupid so that the people who agree with me feel better about agreeing with me. And so our form of argumentation is to mock and to shame other people and to make them look horrible, make them look as bad as possible so we can feel as good as possible about being right. Which is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that if we are going to spread the news of the gospel, we need to speak in ways that appeal to people. I was going to put up a picture of Westboro Baptist Church protesters as a signal of what I mean, the opposite of this, right? They, they hold up these horrible signs that um, say horrible things. And they're wrong on two levels because their theology is wrong, but their methodology is also wrong because I would be interested to find out if a single person has ever looked at that sign and said, you know, you're right, God does hate me. I should change. And then I thought about what other pictures I could put up of people holding signs that talk about God in ways that would aggravate others. Ultimately, I decided not to put any of these pictures up, and I'm not sure that I could, because as soon as I start talking about, say, political candidates, somebody's going to start getting offended. Because I am not supposed to talk about political candidates from the pulpit, political parties, or anybody, because I'm not supposed to mix them and Jesus. Somehow, I get that restriction, and nobody else does. I'm not supposed to mix Jesus and things that offend people and alienate people from the gospel up here. Which I think is true. I don't want you to have to agree with me on anything other than Jesus in order to be able to, to worship here. But that should also affect what I say everywhere else I am. Why would I, why would I behave differently at the store or with my friends or online? More people who need Jesus will see what I say in public than will see what I set up here. And more people will, see, will hear what you say in public than will hear what I set up here. So what we need to be doing if we're going to be part of this mission that Paul has called us to, which is spreading this resurrection way of life, spreading the gospel, is speaking in ways that are intentionally meant to actually draw people to the gospel and never to alienate them from it. Now, people, if you speak the gospel truly, people will, some people will alienate themselves from it because they won't accept what the gospel says. But you shouldn't give them any other reason to be alienated from what you're saying. This is what Paul means when he says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, 
keeping a clear conscience. I have heard some really aggressive apologetics being be defended by the first part of that verse. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks a reason for your hope. I've heard a lot of really aggressive, like the guys that go to college campuses with the signs that are so aggravating, they'll say, this is my biblical precedent, and they'll avoid the part that says, do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience. Too often, our presentation of the gospel or the way we defend Christianity is tinged with fear. And if we believe the gospel, and we've been freed from death, there's no reason to be afraid. We know how the story ends, don't we? It's been spoiled for us. It's in the book. God wins. We don't need to be afraid, and we certainly shouldn't let our fear of an ending that we know cause us to alienate people from the gospel. So speak only in ways that attract people to the gospel. Because notice, and I say only, because he says always. And here's the really hard part. That doesn't just apply to when you're speaking about the gospel. It applies to when you're talking about anything. I'm going to invite the praise team up, and I'm going to ask you to consider a couple of questions as we close. Number one is, have you accepted this resurrection life? Have you accepted the life that comes from following Jesus? Do you have a reason to not be afraid of death and circumstances and failure? Because if you don't, if you haven't, then today is the day to give your life to Jesus and to receive that resurrection life. And the second question is, do you behave in ways that reflect the gospel? Because if the gospel is true, and if, life, if there is eternal life, then there is nothing that, we, that is more valuable than spreading the gospel. Right? Because Paul says, make the most of the time. It actually, the word is uh, redeem the time. Because here's the thing, what is actually at stake in this period of time? For us, if we have eternal life, what's actually at stake? It's not our happiness. It's not our wealth. It's not our purpose. It's not our fulfillment. What's at stake is our friends and our family and people who don't know Jesus. So there isn't really a good reason for us not to behave in ways that reflect the gospel. And question number two is, do you speak in ways that reflect the gospel? For every one of us, the answer to the second and third question is not all the time. For every one of us, the call from God is to recommit ourselves to living in this way every day through constant prayer and thanksgiving. Amen? I invite you to stand for our, our closing hymn and to consider what decision God may be asking you to make, what kind of commitment he may be calling you to make um, as a result of what you've heard today. We have cards in the seat backs in front of you that you can use to respond. If you want to get more connected with God and with the church, that's what the red card is for. If you want to connect with a small group or be part of a group that meets together and... Uh, learns to follow God more faithfully. That's what the green cards are for. And if you want to serve, including through the food bank, that's what the blue cards are for.
invite you now to